This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. This week, how are the citizens of both Russia and Ukraine processing the war? Plus, is Rishi Sunak politically incompetent? And finally, why do so many of Africa's leaders support Putin? First up, our Russia correspondent, Owen Matthews, writes in this week's Spectator that he has been stunned at how easily some of his Russian friends have accepted the Kremlin's propaganda. He joins us now to explain why he thinks this is. Owen, in your piece, you look at why it is that so many Russians, including indeed some old friends of yours, will defend outlandish propaganda from the Kremlin against all evidence. What are some of the reasons for this? I think it's actually something that we've been through in the West um, rather recently. So it's not so incredibly difficult to understand that a certain proportion of the population are willing to believe crazy theories. I mean, whether it's anti-vaxxers or, you know, crazy theories about the alleged benefits of Brexit, which is believed in very strongly in Old Queen Street, or Trump. I mean, there are lots of people who are um, in the business of self-delusion and I think that's the main the main message of my piece and unfortunately it's not a very optimistic message it's it would be very comfortable and and nice for us to believe that Russians are deluded and that they're being misled by the Kremlin I mean both those things are true but the crucial point is that they are complicit in their own self-delusion or to put it in in simpler terms they want to believe and on a human level, that's actually kind of understandable. You know, it's much better, it's much more comfortable place psychologically to believe that your country is is good and right and great, and that um, all the th- the horrible things that Russian soldiers have done in uh, Bucha and um, all the massacres and the uh, abuse of civilians and so on, and just to discount that as as lies spread by enemies and traitors. So um, the, the the basic takeaway of my piece is that actually, you know, a very large portion of Russians delude themselves. They are as much self-deluded as they are misled by the Kremlin. And Owen, oh, you say in your piece that we now find ourselves confronted with what Lenin called the cursed Russian questions, what to do and who to blame. What do you think the answer is to that at this stage? Uh, well, it's it, it's it's not a straightforward answer because there are two completely watertight but completely opposing chains of logic. One of them is, are we a society um, that actually punishes people for their nationality? Are we a society in the West that punishes people for their political views? Um, are we a society that confiscates property with no due, due process? And the answer to the, all those things are, you know, we hope not. And uh, you could argue that, in fact, it's a, 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 it's, it's a moment in history when the West actually really should 
above all stand up for the values on which our society rests, which is free speech and the rule of law and so on. But on the other hand, there's a completely contrary chain of of logic, which is that people need to suffer for their actions. Actions have consequences. And anyone who believes and supports Putin's war is essentially abetting it and is complicit. And the practical implication of this is how do we deal with sanctions on a sort of national level and how do we deal with our relationships on a personal level on the the relationships part is kind of easier because you know you have an individual's words and their posts you know you can argue with them if they persist in insisting that for instance the butcher massacre did not happen uh, and they refuse to believe you know video evidence and so on then they're just obnoxious and delusional and i don't want to be friends with those people on a larger level, sanctions, I think we have to be clear with ourselves that sanctions are really about punishing Russia for supporting Putin. Because frankly, all dictatorships rest on consent much more than they rest on coercion. And I think uh, without the consent of Russian people, uh, this invasion would not be happening and would not be continuing. So they have to be made to see that the world uh, disapproves of their government's actions and uh, innocence will suffer. And that's, that, that becomes a bit of a moral quandary. But uh, it's one that uh, is sort of unanswerable for the moment because, you know, on a, when you're talking about sanctions, you can't just sanction you know, some people and not other people. You're sanctioning a nation and making a whole nation suffer. As, as well as the moral quandary, as you put it, over the innocent Russians or the, the Russians who, who don't support Putin uh, or perhaps actively oppose Putin as much as they're able, uh, and, and all of them being punished by sanctions, as well as the moral quandary to that, do you think there's also a risk that sanctions could, could galvanise the Russian people further against the West? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that's, that's exactly the problem, is that actually, as we've seen, um, you know, famously in North Korea and Iran, sanctions are just very, very bad way of bringing regime change. You know, it hasn't really worked ever. And I had uh, my friend Simon Jenkins has, uh, has argued this very strongly in The Guardian, that actually, why, you know, why are we imposing sanctions when we know that every other round of sanctions against every country, whether it's Syria or or oh, the, 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 the Ayatollahs of, of Iran have actually only really been strengthened ultimately by the idea of an external enemy, which is, of course, one of the, one of the great narratives of, of any dictatorship. You know, we are under attack. We, the, the, the state, are protecting you from the world that is hostile to us, and we have to unite against the common enemy. But I think the problem, the, 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 the answer to that question, that it's ineffective, is uh, what's the alternative? If we don't do impose sanctions and we just do business as usual, then we're kind of confirming what the Russians have believed all along, which was or had believed until it happened that the West was totally cynical and, and interested only in making money and was not willing to actually impose pain upon itself for moral reasons. But that's been definitively disproved by the sanctions being imposed. And I mean, what, I mean you say in your piece that um, obviously a lot of the Russians believe Rus- the Kremlin's propaganda, but what's the best way to counter that? You, you make the point in your piece that it's important not to allow claims that the West is cancelling Russian culture to become true. I mean, how does the West go about countering what's being put out by the Kremlin? Uh, that's very difficult um, because um, 
the Kremlin has actually, you know, attempted to create a kind of, you know, a uh, closed information space. But on the other hand, um, if you want to get independent news, you can, but you need to install a virtual private network, for instance, on your phone or your computer. I mean, lots of, you know, older Russians are not particularly computer literate and, you know, just believe the television. And that's been the sort of basis of, of Putin's power for, for, for two decades, is control of the, the media space and the message. What the West can do, um, I mean, in practical terms, just sort of continue um, sort of, uh, supporting independent Russian media like uh, Medusa, Nova Gazeta, and so on. But also, in practical terms, actually not making the Kremlin claims true, not cancelling Tchaikovsky and and, uh, and 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 Russian culture. Eventually, that's um, sadly most people in Russia will not ever know that not to be true. But nonetheless, it's important that you know we actually distinguish between you know Russian culture and r- modern Russians who actively support Putin. And uh, finally, Owen, you mentioned that uh, uh, the West should be under no illusions, that, and we should be aware that the that the prospect of a of a, a mass of Russians rising up against their leaders because of sanctions is extremely unlikely. Do you think Putin has any fear of his people? And they're discontent. Yeah, he certainly does. They they absolutely do. And I, and actually, it's one of the things that that is not really widely enough appreciated, is the extent to which the the Kremlin is absolutely paranoid about the street, and they're obsessive about polling. In fact, I mean, they they now there's now sort of a, one independent polling center and at least two, if not three private state-owned polling centers yeah of course they're very concerned about about the street and public opinion and that's why they go to such enormous lengths to produce this very sophisticated media package to form it because it's the absolute basis absolute basis of their power the reality is that actually russians um, have in recent living memory gone through so many economic crises in 2008 and 1998 They've seen their currency collapse. They've seen prices spike. They've seen inflation, not to mention like the absolute sort of chaos of the early 90s. Russians have actually been through a lot. So their bar for revolution is exceptionally high. I'm not saying that eventually the sanctions will not ruin the Russian economy and undermine Putin. I think that that may happen, but it's not going to be immediate and it's not going to be uh, a reaction to the disappearance of sort of Western creature comforts and retail and sort of internet products and so on. I mean, I I don't think the majority of Russians sadly care very much about that. And since 2014, lots of the Russian economy in the really important aspects that people really care about, in other words, like self-sufficiency in sort of basic food products, they've been kind of cut off already from the West for four years, for, for, for eight years, since 2014. So they've, by self-imposed sanctions, there's, a, there's officially been no imports of food from the EU since 2014. So actually, for the most part, the Russians actually, they're experiencing a bit of inflation. But so far, that's kind of compensated for by this sort of wave of patriotism. Um, what happens if, uh, you know, after an effective military defeat, that's more hard to say. And the military defeat, an absolute military defeat, is going to be unsurvivable for Putin. But I think he's going to make sure that that doesn't happen. He's going to come away from this with some territorial gains in order sufficient to claim victory, whatever the reality may be on the ground. Thank you, Owen. And we're now joined by the journalist and author of This Is Not Propaganda, Peter Pomerantsev, who's travelled to Kiev to celebrate the festival of Passover. Peter, in your notebook this week, you begin with your experience at this year's International Journalism Festival in Perugia. 
What was the mood like there in light of the events in Ukraine? So the mood was a mix of joyous, happy reunions, because it was the first festival for a couple of years. And Perugia always puts one in a good mood. Um, I think it's really the loveliest of the Umbrian cities, which is why Lebedev lives near there and Boris Johnson likes to go there for famous parties. It was a mix. We were really happy to see each other. Many of us hadn't seen each other for several years. But at the same time, I don't know, the first panel I was on was dedicated to the 18 journalists killed already in Ukraine, including a colleague of mine, Oksana Baulina, a Russian journalist who uh, was in Kiev and went to film a shopping mall that the Russians had hit. And then the Russians hit it again with another missile and, and she was killed. And uh, there was a lot of, I, I didn't actually know her. I mean, we, we worked for the same publication, but I, I didn't know her. But everybody else did. So there's a lot of that as well. And you write in your notebook about the hate, which understandably is within the hearts of a lot of the Ukrainian people towards Russia. And you're in Kiev now, you're speaking to us from Kiev. Could you tell us a little bit about how uh, people you meet uh, around the city, how they're, how they're keeping these, uh, I suppose, destructive emotions under control? I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. I think anybody, everybody I speak to from sort of the highest officials in the country through to friends of mine who have given up their sort of careers in academia and media to, to serve on the front, all of them speak about this. All of them speak about, you know, the idea that even if the perpetrators are ever brought to justice, and we all know how slow that justice is, even that wouldn't really be enough. People talk a lot about the sort of Israeli model of going around the world and and sort of assassinating former Nazis. And then they say, we know even that wouldn't be enough. And, and there's this tug because at the same time, you know, this war is partly about, you know, being a European country and all those values that... That, that we talk about so much and think about so little. And obviously they're in, they're in contrast to that. And also maybe just on a, on a different level, just you don't want to become like the other side. So it's, it's a real conflict. I don't think it's a conflict that can ever really be resolved. You can only sort of be talked about. And this obviously isn't the first time that you and your family have experienced Russian aggression. Your father was arrested <laughs> by the KGB. Okay, I guess so. That was, that, that was Soviet. That wasn't that Russian, but okay. I mean, how does it feel to sort of be kind of experiencing this all over again? So, I mean, golly, I mean, I, I, um, I mean it's not really about me at all. But Russia is sort of commits repeat violations and, and repeat attempts at annihilating Ukrainian existence. They did it in the 19th century. They did it with the artificial famines that they created here. They did it in, I suppose, my parents' generation through sort of, you know, more targeted arrests and repressions, and they're doing it again now. So this sort of repeats, 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 and repeats. But what's different this time is that Ukraine is fighting back and winning, and it's breaking its cycle of being a victim. And it's becoming a country that wins, which is something that we in the West are really struggling with because, I mean, I was in D.C., well, I live in D.C., and even people who were sympathetic towards Ukraine were like, give them three days, give them four days, give them five days. And most people aren't sympathetic to Ukraine because they know nothing about it. And even if they're hawkish on Russia, see the world through a Russian lens uh, and kind of end up having a huge respect for, for their enemy... And so don't really think Ukraine is a real country either. So we, we, Ukrainians are breaking the cycle. We're still quite a long way behind, and that has a really direct influence on policy. 
because I was in DC and senior advisors from the think tank world would say, what's the point of arming them? They're going to lose anyway. Why aggravate it? Why make it worse? So, you know, the, the, these deep cultural sort of stereotypes, which might even be a form of structural racism, I don't quite know what that is, but that might be one of them, really have an influence on policy. So the Ukrainians are breaking their cycle and their stereotypes. We're sort of getting there, but slowly. And uh, you write about how you're going to be spending Passover in, in Kiev this year and how the celebration of Passover echoes in some part of what is what is happening in Ukraine now. Could you expand it a little upon that for our listeners? Um, um, sorry, I missed that for a second. I just got a weird email. Sorry, I just got sort of a warning. <laughs> I just got a, something promising another attack on Kiev. Sorry. Um, sorry, go on, yeah? Gosh, sorry, you got an email saying there's going to be an attack on Kiev? Yeah, not now, just in May at some point. Doesn't matter. Yeah, go on. Say that again. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'll, not, I'll not, do not the like, question Not again. like right now. <laughs> I'll, do, huh? I'll do the question again. Um, you write in your notebook about how you're spending Passover in Kiev, and you also write about the uh, how the celebration of Passover echoes some part of, of what is happening in Ukraine right now. Could, could you expand a little upon that for our listeners? I, I think I think it's a really I think it's a really easy connection to make. Um, you know, you, you, Passover is all about a, a nation fighting for its right to exist in the face of a sort of like somewhat genocidal pharaoh-like figure. But it's also about these sort of paradoxes of how you. I mean, Passover is all about celebrating really quite a you know bloodthirsty, you know, killing the firstborn type of victory. And there's a lot of celebration, and then there's a lot of kind of like searching within the Jewish tradition about how you you know, how you don't give in fully to those feelings. And that's what, you know, as we mentioned, that's what Ukraine is going through. It's a, it's a country f- literally fighting for its existence, for its right to, to be, and at the same time battling this sort of sense of we don't want to be eaten up by hate. So I think the parallels are, are simple and many. And as Will said, you're obviously in Kiev. Can you paint a picture for listeners of what life in Kiev is like and how it compares to when you've been there previously? So I was here two weeks ago. So, I mean, that's my comparison. There's more things open. People are coming back. There are traffic jams again, but it's still pretty spectral and empty. I mean, most shops are still closed. You can't drink, though people might do at the hotel bars. Everything shuts at nine, which is curfew. I mean, it's, and it's strict. So it's kind of weird. This town is full of my friends who are journalists, but we're all we're all in different hotels. So we can't see each other. We're, you know, everyone's out reporting during the day. And then they get back to the hotel and then weirdly we're like, wow, you know, I haven't seen you for two years and we can't meet up because of the curfew. So the curfew is taken very seriously. I think that there was one restaurant open two weeks ago. There's now three restaurants open. But, you know, it's still very much a city in a military mindset. And as I said, no one thinks this war is won and everyone knows that the Russians will be back and that, um, you know, especially if the West doesn't deliver the right weapons for the war in Donbass, which is the war in the east of the country, that'll mean the Russians come back quicker and with more with more violence. So finally, Peter, on that, we get a sense here in the West of the, the, the strength of the Ukrainian will to to fight. But I wonder how much you get a sense of hope that the war might actually be won. No one doubts for a second that Ukraine will survive as a sovereign state. And the aim of Putin was to wipe it out as a sovereign state. And we have a lot of debates, as you know, in Britain about sovereignty and its meaning, which seem pretty privileged when you get here. I mean, literally is about the right to exist and the right to have a choice 
and and you actually understand why the word sovereignty is so important. So so no one doubts that. The question is, what are going to be the, some of the terms? But everyone knows that any sort of terms are temporary. I mean, until Putin goes, and that whole kind of me- imperial mentality goes in Russia, we're going to be fighting. And and Zelensky, the president, talks about this openly. We're going to be probably a bit like Israel, just permanently on on guard. And if this is like our you know five day war, there'll be another war down the road. So I think if people understand this is this is for as long as Putin is there and there might be pauses, there might be movements forward, there might be retreats. But until something really fundamental changes in the minds of the Russian leadership, this is forever. Thank you, Peter. Next up. Until very recently, Rishi Sunak was a favourite to succeed Boris Johnson. But this week, his popularity plummeted to new lows. Our deputy political editor, Katie Balls, writes about the Chancellor's challenges in this week's magazine, and she joins us now, along with Chris Curtis, from Opinium Research, to talk about Rishi's nightmare week. Katie, you write in The Spectator that Rishi Sunak is fighting for his political survival. First, there was his spring statement, which didn't go down especially well uh, in the media, and then the controversies about his wife's non-dom status and about his green card, and now this week we have... Uh, a fine from the police for breaking lockdown rules. There was even talk of him resigning, but now that hasn't happened, at least at the time of recording. How perilous is his position right now? So I think he's vulnerable. Um, ultimately, we've gone from a situation where, if you think of the start of the year, Boris Johnson looked under a lot of pressure. And I think there was always a sense amongst Tory MPs that if Boris Johnson keeled over under the weight of Partygate, you'd have a shiny successor next door in Rishi Sunak who could come in, would, as a teetotal chancellor who doesn't go partying, would almost be the, the opposite of the prime minister. And therefore, you could have a leader contest but everyone knew that they had they had an option and nothing better came along now i think what's happened in the past month is we've seen uh rishi sunak's uh popularity in terms of his approval ratings plummets and it's down to a few factors so one cost of living the spring statement as you mentioned I think misfired and from that point onwards lots of doubts and I think one of the biggest problems of Rishi Sunak is it feels as when he is under pressure because he's been on a lot of pressure recently as we've seen the stories about his wife's non-dom tax status possession of a green card It doesn't feel as though he stays calm under pressure or perhaps um, knows how to deal with it. And therefore, I think for Tory MPs, it's part the fact of things. uh, Can you have, for example, a future leader whose wife is a non-dom or has, you know, at one point wasn't paying taxes on foreign earnings? But two, it's what are this guy's instincts? Can we trust to have that person who, uh, you know, affronting us? Are they ready yet? And I think that's where it feels to me, and as I mentioned in the piece, speaking to lots of Tories, um, ministers, former ministers, Tory MPs, there is a sense that now is not his time. I still wouldn't rule Rishi Sudak out forever, but if there is a leadership contest this year, as one put it to me, it'd be extremely hard for him to run at this point. Chris, your opinion poll from last week showed Sunak's approval rating at a new low of minus 15. And while he's still slightly more popular than the Prime Minister, is this drop a combination of small factors or is one scandal broken through? And, and how are the numbers looking now? Yeah, I mean, I think by the end of this week, his approval ratings will probably have reached you know, the same low as the Prime Minister's even. And I agree with most of what Katie said. I mean, in terms of whether it's small things or big things, I think it probably is a mix of everything, to be honest. The, the approval rating hasn't just been falling 
you know, over the past few weeks since these stories have come out. I mean, it's fallen a lot more dramatically over that time, but it's been going down for some time. So I think roughly half the fall can probably be put down to everything that happened before the latest allegations, whether that cost of living crisis, the end of the pandemic, meaning he was no longer getting credit for furlough, uh, you know, all, all of those issues. And then the other half can be put down to all of the latest allegations up to and including the party gate fines. But yes, his approval rating has draw, has fallen you know, incredibly far from being you know, one of the most popular politicians in the country to just as unpopular as a pretty unpopular prime minister. Katie, how have the fines for both Rishi and Boris changed the balance of power between number 10 and number 11? Well, I think it's to be confirmed because... In a strange way, I think Rishi Sunak receiving a fine might make it harder for Boris Johnson to move his Chancellor in in the short term. I think you have a situation where I would say Tory MPs and the Chancellor himself are actually very surprised that Rishi Sunak received a fine over this birthday cake situation. Various people say he turned up early to a meeting. So I think there was a sense that he wouldn't. It's obviously bad news for Rishi Sunak in many ways because that comparison I mentioned earlier of, you know, the partying prime minister compared to, you know, squeaky clean chancellor. Well, Labour now can say they both received fines and they both broke COVID rules. And because neither are challenging them, uh, they have accepted this. In terms of what it means for the power balance between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, I think the fact that Rishi Sunak received criticism after the spring statement combined with recent stories meant there was always a risk that Boris Johnson could see this as his chance to move the Chancellor in a reshuffle we could have one this summer. And we know that in the past he has at least joked, but I think more angrily said that he would potentially want to move his chance that there was a, a, a meeting at one point where he said in front of his advisors I might move him to the Department of Health now I think it was always quite hard for him to do that when Rishi Sunak looked as though he was the most popular uh, figure in his government he ended last year as the most popular politician in the country it's worth pointing out now I think you could move him to a different great office of state would Rishi Sunak accept that let's see but I think the issue with the fines is that ultimately would it look as though Boris Johnson was moving his chance now because he had received a fixed penalty notice? Because if that does look like that, then people say, well, how can you punish your Chancellor for this if you have won and potentially more fines to come? And Chris, what about Labour? What has this all meant for Labour in the polls? I mean, I don't think Labour's going to be particularly upset with their polling at the moment. I don't think it's unlikely that by next week we'll start to see polls that say, show the Labour Party with du- double-digit leads over the Conservatives. And obviously, you know, those kind of numbers, I, th- I don't think anybody believes that they'll be able to hold that up until the next election day, although it's not impossible. But if they do, that obviously means they'd be t- able to turn around quite a comfortable Conservative majority into a majority of their own. So a massive swing from 2019. They're not going to be unhappy. But I, I still think that they you know, in all of this crisis and scandal, they probably haven't done quite a good enough job at solving their big sort of strategic weaknesses. And the biggest one is probably still the economy. And I think that's what's really strange about all of these arguments that are happening at the moment is that the public actually share quite a few of Rishi Sunak's economic instincts, particularly this idea that like, the books need to be balanced and we can't just keep spending. You know, when you sit in focus groups, people will tell you that before you even ask the question, you know, particularly coming out of the pandemic, which people do appreciate was incredibly expensive and cost the country a lot of money. If the Conservatives were to push that argument forward and to say when, for example, they can't 
you know, take more money off people's energy bills. If they were to put forward that argument and place that front and centre, I think a lot of people in this country would buy it and agree with it. But they haven't been able to do that because they're constantly distracted by everything else that's going on. And, you know, so so, so Rishi Sunak's instinct to make that argument may have worked, but it, it just hasn't worked in practice because of because of everything else that's, uh, that, that's been happening. In order to answer the question, that's what puts Labour in a difficult position because, you know, Labour can't come out and keep saying, yeah, we're the free pony party, we'll give you whatever we want and we won't tell you how to pay for it. Labour still needs to worry about talking about how they're going to fund all of their projects, talking about where the money's going to come from on the cost of living crisis. Actually, they've done that with the um, windfall tax on energy companies, or at least, you know, it sounds like they've done it. But that policy hasn't necessarily cut through again because of the chaos. So, so But Labour needs to be doing a lot more to, to sort of solve those strategic problems that they have rather than just responding to whatever it is that Johnson screwed up this week. Katie, at the beginning of the year, Boris Johnson's position looked pretty perilous because of uh, the Partygate scandal. Then obviously a lot of the the, the heat went out of any Tory rebellion uh, in large part because of the war in Ukraine. But if more fines are to come out in weeks to come from the other parties being investigated by the police, and and let's say the Prime Minister gets fined three, four more times to, to add to this initial fine, do you think Tory backbenchers might start to feel rebellious once again? Yeah, they could do. I think what we've seen this year is Tory MPs really don't want to be the ones who have to do too much themselves to ask the Prime Minister, even if they would like the Prime Minister to be gone. If you think back to the start of the year, lots of people thought when Rishi Sunak was in a much stronger place politically, you could have a scenario where he could resign just over the Sue Gray Partygate investigation, and that would trigger more. But I think there's always been a reluctance by any single politician in the Tory party to wield the knife on the ground so it can often mean that you you don't actually get very near the crown and people blame you for the mess even if other people might benefit eventually I think in terms of where things sit now yes after this fine was announced uh, we did not see a rush of letters we only had a very small hand for the Tory MPs say Boris Johnson should go but do remember there are still some Tory MPs from earlier this year who have said Boris Johnson should go who still think he should go so there's, there's a bit of a stock number already there I think that if you look at the probably over 70, there's a list on Coffeehouse MPs who have come out to defend Boris and say he should stay. That sounds quite noisy. I think it's created a situation that he has lots of support. But that means there are, you know, well over 200 Tory MPs who have said nothing. And yes, we're in recess, but those are Tory MPs who I think the majority, some are busy with the holidays, but I think the majority are keeping their powder dry and waiting to see what happens. And there are a few factors. I think there's Local elections is going to be a factor in May, how bad that is. But as you say, how many parties? And I think one of the tricky things for the government is they've set a few precedents in terms of their handling this week. If the threshold is the birthday cake meeting, I think lots of people think that means other events that Boris Johnson being investigated for attending could also pass that threshold, you know, ones which are, you know, involve booze and drinking, which this one uh, was a much more daytime between meetings. And... We've seen, in terms of how Tory MPs have defended Boris Johnson, they've been come out to say, well, you know, it's just a cake. The cake may not be in the box. They're only there for a couple of minutes. And they've really played the specific event. Now, if there are fines for other events, does that mean Tory MPs are going to get out there and say, well, it was just some bottles of wine. It was just a trestle table. Just a bit of ABBA. You know, <laughs> just some ABBA in the flat. Again, we don't know if all these details are true yet, as well saying, but, you know, it, are they going to have to start 
in a way justifying every single one I think that could get very uncomfortable for MPs and the Prime Minister number 10 and also there's small things such as the fact there is now a precedent that people say what fine they get a £50 fine now there are higher fines you can get if uh, for example you know one of the investigations is into an event in the Downing Street flat so if the Met Police found that there was wrongdoing there and there were Covid fines does someone get fined £10,000 for organising that? Because at the moment, you would expect Downing Street to tell us. And, and I think that's why it's too early to say Boris Johnson has got free party game. Thank you, Katie and Chris. And finally, why are so many African leaders supporting Putin? Aidan Hartley, our wildlife columnist, argues in this week's Spectator that it's because many of the previously colonised nations still see the West as their old enemy and therefore Putin as their ally. Aidan joins us now. Aidan, in your piece this week, you look at why so many African leaders are currently supporting Putin over the West. What seems to be the main driving force of this support? Uh, I think the point you make is that they're African leaders and Putin has friends in Africa who are often dictators, uh, running authoritarian regimes. The interests of their people are not a priority and they're cutting deals with Putin to bolster failing state or uh, weak regimes. But that's just the relationships that he's got in several countries where he's using groups such as the Wagner Group that is uh, prosecuting wars and atrocities in return for minerals and other advantage across the continent. And that's the picture that we see in 2022. I think that there are deeper historical reasons for this, which I talk about in the piece that have their roots in the 1960s, when a lot of the uh, groups that were fighting wars against colonialism sought and obtained a lot of help from the Soviet Union. And they're described as liberation movements, um, but in fact, quite often in these countries, the independence handed populations over to rapacious dictators who uh, destroyed their countries under the flag of communism. And although you can say that, you know, multi-party democracy has uh, put down roots across the continent over the past 30 years, and that ideology has often gone, the apparatus of the state that is a hangover from those communist or socialist regimes does uh, persist. And so, the paranoia and the corruption and the authoritarianism continues. And I think that uh, that explains some of what's going on. At the UN vote in early March, when the UN sought to condemn the invasion of Ukraine, 17 uh, African countries abstained and some of them didn't turn up for the vote. So it's about half of the continent, which is quite a substantial number, of countries that didn't come out explicitly to condemn Russia um, for its actions. And Aidan, you say in your, in your article that the West bears some responsibility for creating this situation. How so? Well, I talk about how in the 1960s and 70s, Western countries, perhaps because they were so keen to bail out of the continent and end colonialism, were satisfied about leaving Uh, these countries in the hands of these parties and these movements that uh, implemented either hardline socialist or communist regimes. One example is is Tanzania, where in fact all of the 
declarations by Julius Nyerere, who set up what uh, is still the ruling party ever since 1960. It's called the Revolutionary Party, even today, in 2022. This, you know, looked east. They got a lot of help from East Germany, from China and the Soviet Union. But they were backed very passionately by Western countries, including the United Kingdom, that had a great deal of sympathy for his policies. And these policies, like Ujamaa, were absolutely disastrous for the country. By the 1980s, Tanzania was completely bankrupt. And as I say, Julius Nyerere had to die in a London hospital because his own hospitals were unable to supply even basic drugs. And, of course, at that time, the country then adopted policies that were in line with the IMF and the World Bank structural adjustment ideas. But, you know, there is still a lot of nostalgia for the left-wing Chumachumapinduzi days, um, which persists until today. Now, Aidan, in your piece, you asked the question, how should Britain respond to these countries that accept aid but hate the West and back Putin? What do you think the answer is to that? Well, I, I say that I think that this is, you know, a very important uh, point in history when African leaders should make a decision. Who are they going to back? Are they going to support a country? Just from a pragmatic point of view, you know, the invasion of Ukraine is going to wipe out the crop planting season. And so the price of, of wheat and sunflower oil and other staples on which Hundreds of millions of Africans uh, uh, subsist. Uh, these prices are, are already going up, and so it's very bad for Africa. So why would they support uh, an action by Russia that is going to uh, destroy their source of uh, cheap food? And bread prices have been behind unrest in uh, countries such as Sudan in the past, and we're going to see that again. There was a, a coup in Khartoum a few months ago, and there's already unrest on the streets, and that will be exacerbated by food prices. But then also, you know, morally, I mean, Ethiopia didn't turn up for the vote uh, the first time around in early March to condemn Putin's invasion. And then in the most recent UN vote, uh, which chucked um, Russia out of the Human Rights Council, Ethiopia rejected the expulsion of Russia. Ethiopia receives something like £254 million a year from the UK. So what's it doing? I mean, it's prosecuting a war in Ethiopia, of course, using Sukhoi fighter bombers and weapons that have been obtained from Russia. So what do they want? Do they want Sukhoi bombers or do they want uh, development projects and things that are going to grow their economy? It's this thing. It's sort of, you know, do you want butter or do you want guns? And Aidan, uh, some historians like to say that we are currently in a uh, Cold War too between the West on, on one side and Russia and also uh, China too on the other. How pivotal do you see Africa's role in this superpower showdown? I think it's important when you look at the influence of China, which is very significant across the African continent. Economically, it's very significant. The Chinese are investing hugely in minerals, but also in building the infrastructure of the continent. And in some respects, the Chinese influence is very positive. It's giving Africa what it needs. Russia is not giving Africa what it needs at all. 
the deals that it's doing with the continent are pretty much insignificant when you compare uh, British trade with the continent. British trade alone is about double what the Russians are able to offer the continent. And of course, what Britain is offering the continent is a lot more useful, much more butter, whereas the Russians are offering more guns. Aidan, thank you very much for joining us. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read everything we've discussed? If you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. Do join us again next week and have a very happy Easter.